post-war America. The boys have come home and are back to work. Families are born and resettle into burgeoning suburbia. Cities stretch on for miles, linked by endless highways in a promised land that can only be described as insatiable. By the dawn of the 1950s, there was no denying that bigger was better in America. That brings us to the great inland empire of Los Angeles. Hollywood pictures now included everything in the kitchen sink. Vast biblical epics like the Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur, Circean melodramas and gorgeous technicolor like Imitation of Life and Written on the Wind, bloated and sometimes literal clown cars of stars like Around the World in 80 Days and The Greatest Show on Earth. And speaking of showmanship, one can't forget the theatrical antics of William Castle and the trending 3D movie industry. Hollywood had skewed big and broad, and you can better believe it brought noir along with it. In many ways, it was a fitting time for Mickey Spillane's barrel-chested private eye Mike Hammer to pound his way onto the screen. Less a detective than a blunt instrument, he hits hard and blusters through most of his scenes, particularly across his 50s adaptations. These films are violent, lurid, and quintessentially pulp. The question then is whether this shift was an inevitable one. Was this the obvious path forward for Hollywood, now deep in the mature years of the Hayes Code? Or could it be that there were external influences on everyone's mind? You don't have to look farther than the Spillane adaptations to see them, from the explosive punches of Mike Hammer to the looming Red Scare to a certain beach house blown to kingdom come. In Hollywood of the 1950s and early 60s, it is the bomb, the bomb, the bomb that will bring us together. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. It's just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. So you're a private detective. I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like, uh... Your opinion, man. Step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. Ladies, it's okay with me. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Fred Pelzer, joined by my friend, Tristan Johnson. And tonight we are zeroing in on the works of another hard-boiled master, Mickey Spillane. We had charted out three films to explore with you tonight, all featuring his hard-hitting detective, Mike Hammer, I the Jury, Kiss Me Deadly, and My Gun is Quick. But wait, there's more. Then we decided to move just beyond the 50s to 1963 to be exact, for a rare treat. Our fourth film of the night, The Girl Hunters, actually sees Mickey Spillane take on the role of Hammer himself. Not something you see too often, more ever. How successful is he at this? You'll just have to keep listening to find out. So without further ado, let's get down to business, starting with I, the jury. Introducing Biff Elliott as Mike Hammer. You recognize me, Big Mouth? I figured we'd meet again. Well, you got your wish. Not until I splash your teeth out all over the floor. 
I, the jury, marks the first big screen appearance of Mike Hammer, and the film, much like its protagonist, has something to prove. Stars Biff Elliott as Mike Hammer with supporting turns from Preston Foster, Peggy Castle, Margaret Sheridan, and a brief appearance by Alicia Cook Jr., uh, who we uh, have encountered a couple times by now. Released in 1953, it was directed by Harry Essex and produced by Victor Seville. Um, so uh, the basic I mean, plot just here... Just uh, on Alicia Cook Jr. of it all, one of the things that I really enjoy about noir in the 40s and the 50s is that between the studio system and the B picture of it all, you wind up with a lot of familiar faces that are just sort of grinding out these movies. And it kind of gets to feel like a little family where you just kind of go, oh yeah, half the actors in this movie I saw in like six other movies that I just watched. It does. Uh, we, we barely even scratch the surface on this and we're already getting that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and Alicia Cook Jr. is certainly, uh, he, you know, he gets to stake his claim on two pretty... Uh, um, veritable classics early on but uh you know nice to see him pop up here in uh in santa claus garb <laughs> uh but i'm sorry I, I cut you off there no no um uh so basic basic layout lay of the land here uh this is uh i i thought the most convoluted of the of the plots that we went through with uh yes. with these four movies we're going to talk up today um so we've got uh, Mike Hammer's old war buddy, Jack, is shot in his apartment in the opening scene, uh, which is pretty memorable. He's kind of clawing his way across the, the carpet. Um, that was great. That it's was a, it's like, a really, a really strong, vivid opening. I mean, it just um, stays on. I mean, it, he, it takes a while for him to die. He, he keeps going. He's it's coming horrifying. right at you. And of course, uh, well, I'll get to. I'll get to um, the uh, why the, why I, I think they did it like that uh, in just a moment. But um, this all this leads Mike Hammer to take up the case. He's on the trail, he runs across uh, many other suspects. We've got uh, Jack's fiance, Myrna. Uh, we've got a scheming art dealer and his live-in friend. We've got uh, a set of <laughs> twins. We've got a psychoanalyst and author uh, by the name of Charlotte, uh, who he inevitably falls for um and we've got alicia cook jr uh, of course um uh, and and his santa claus disguise uh by the end hammer uh will have realized that uh that that charlotte had killed off jack's fiance and uh he will uh end up getting his revenge i mean it's just so, place place, place going on here because this also skips the everything with the dance hall slash prostitution ring right isn't that a whole subplot in this movie or am i confusing this with another one of these uh, i think that that was in um um in uh my gun is quick i think was that my gun is quick I, no no it, my gun this, is quick she, he, she is a um she's dancing at the blue or so, the, she's a, she's yeah. a she's a showgirl but he, here isn't there the whole thing with the Man, if I watch like a different oh. noir and I'm just messing it no, with all no, these, no. I'd be um, very... you're, you're probably you're you're probably right. I think this this is the one that was sensory overload because there were yes. just so many so many characters and they all appeared for approximately five minutes and yes. and then make their exit. Sometimes their their very final exit. Um, and yeah. and on top of that, um, this is all uh, all shot in three D. <laughs> right, and this is the other thing. I, 
watching it, I was just constantly like, why is this shot in 3D? I mean, I guess that that opening with the well, when he gets shot and he's and, crawling and across of, the floor. Think about but... all the punches that there's a that True. one of one of his brawls near the end in particular, they just devolve into into shots where they're they're punching straight at the camera. So you can imagine that that's, that's being true. That's done true. with the and he Mike Hammer, uh, as we will see over and over again, never found a room he couldn't punch his way out of. I mean, there's a reason to call it Mike Hammer, but yes, no, so that's right. So it's the 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 thing that his friend got involved in. So his friend, right, was a cop and then lost, got wounded in the war couldn't work as a cop anymore so became a private investigator slash insurance investigator and then he got hired to track down this girl which led him to the the dance studio remember the two italians who are pretending to be or the they're pretending to be mexican at one point like they get revealed and they're like nobody wants to nobody wants to take dance samba lessons from you if you're from the bronx but if you say that you're you know you came from latin america yes. then you can uh and it, like but i agree i mean it's just like constant clearly this book I, neither of us read it but clearly this book has a lot of incident to it that they felt that they had to put all of it in here yeah and this is this is our first Spillane adaptation but they're gonna they're gonna come um one after another after another and so i guess uh we should we should kind of begin with a, a quick uh laying out of uh, of who Mickey Spillane is comes a little bit later than some of the other hard-boiled authors we've we've already acquainted ourselves with he's born in the Bronx or sorry he's born in Brooklyn he's raised in New Jersey his father is a bartender he becomes an airman uh during World War II uh but he's also um log time as a lifeguard as, as a clerk at Gimbel's uh as a trapeze artist at Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey um, and then he jumps into comic writing before transitioning over into novels. Uh, and uh, and I, the jury, is the first, um, the first to be adapted. It will also get adapted again later in the 1980s. Uh, but uh, but throughout the 50s, we're going to get um, we're going to get two more film adaptations, which we'll be covering uh, a TV series, uh, the first of several, featuring Mike Hammer. And then uh, and then we're going to eventually move into the 60s where Spillane himself will take on the role um, in our final movie. Yeah, no, Hammer, Hammer, I mean, there's a lot of these books. Um, Hammer definitely had a hold on the pop culture in this this frame of time. The, I mean, not only was there a series in the 50s, but also, right, there was several TV series in the 1980s and 90s, all of them starring Stacey Keach. Stacey Keach stars as, as Mike Hammer in three different ongoing and I'd be intrigued because he he seems like a fitting a fitting casting for for Hammer. I mean, it was a hit. Like I, they kept bringing him back and doing that. new new Mike Hammer adaptations, and every time they're like, "Get me Stacy Keach." Considering every single one of these adaptations we're going to talk about has a different Hammer, and there's uh, there's certainly through lines between all of them, uh, uh, very definite ones, but uh, but some subtle differences too. Yeah, uh, some and, major differences. And the airman thing i think is interesting i mean it's not i don't know it's not that interesting because obviously that was the experience of a lot of men of a certain age of spillane's generation but that is very prevalent i feel like in the adaptations and presumably in the books as well that my camera served and there are either you know in here we've got one of his war buddies uh and kiss me deadly he 
or no, I can't, these all blend together. Um, I think in Kiss Me Deadly, he refers to being, uh, you know, being um, deployed. And then definitely in My Gun Is Quick, he talks about, you know, I miss out on this thing because there, there's some something that they were like, oh, this big robbery that happened in the 40s. And, and he was like, well, I was in Iwo Jima when that happened. And he was like, oh, right, you served. <laughs> like, okay, yes. I get it. I think that is part of, and just part of the general, as you said, in the keynote at the top, the general sense of masculinity in America, part of the definition of that at this time was service of, of having served in world war two. And, uh, I mean, you know, compulsory, uh, service, but service nonetheless, not to say that Spillane, I don't know, Spillane might've volunteered, who knows, but just as sort of a general generational thing, it was compelled. So it was pretty defining for a lot of people. I've not read any of his his novels, uh, and I don't know if they extend much beyond Mike Hammer. But all all you see throughout all of these these film and television adaptations is is Mike Hammer. Mike Hammer. Um, he's he's his guy. Um, he is he is literally him um, as as we as we will come to at the end. Right. Well, I think, feel like we're talking very broadly. I think in part again because this this movie, the specifics of it are just so. <laughs> Uh, I don't know we'll, we'll get into it but the as like as a character and as a certain type of story in, in general in generally the pulp of it all it feels like it has taken the wish fulfillment that we were talking about in the big sleep of you know him almost a Bogart and Bogart's Marlowe almost being a proto James Bond in terms of how he's always quick on his feet and one step ahead and all the ladies just want to have sex with him. Anybody he meets just instantly like, yeah, I'll make out with you a little bit. And then just five, five to 10 years later, here we are. And hammer is every single one of those elements just jacked up to an 11 of like, I'm anybody I meet, I can punch out any lady I meet. I'm just going to kiss without (laughs) hesitation. I mean, it's it's a pure pulp fantasy. this um i i the jury to me um read and i i i think we have we have um uh biff elliott's performance here to to thank for partly shaping it and partly just the real pulp sensibility of this of this movie but that there was a real um that there's a real sense that biff elliott as hammer had something to prove here he is he is um just um he's he's mad he's um he's got of course he's he's on a mission of of um vengeance to uh to hunt down his friend's killer but um but just i think as an actor he feels like he's overcompensating constantly he's uh and and there's uh there's an energy that that pushes it well into parody of masculinity territory or from my viewing uh no i agree with that and also i realized that we kind of skipped our usual personal experience right so oh, yeah i'm a complete neophyte when it comes to my camera i know that you love kiss me deadly i remember it was at a showing of one of the music boxes uh noir what is their what is their noir series called you remember what they're they do those like a yearly oh, i don't think i ever noir marathon that, but it was showing one year and I remember you tr- trying okay. to get me to go, go see it. And I, I wish I had, we'll get to it in the next, next section here. But, um, 
But yeah, so I'm I'm coming in pretty cold on my camera in general uh, before we started watching these movies. Uh, Kiss Me Deadly is my one and only entry point to my camera and to Spillane. Um, I'd watched it as part of a class back in um, back in college, and uh, and I guess we'll get to that when we talk about about that movie but uh but for i the jury i i was coming in cold only the only thing informing it was a general um sense of who my camera was supposed to be and um and even though uh even though biff elliott's performance here is is quite different from um um, from Ralph Meeker and kiss me deadly he still does square up with what i uh, what i imagine uh my camera to be in my head, even uh, having been a number of years since I've seen it. So I think this is where the difference in our opinion about this movie comes from. Cause we talked about this a little bit before we recorded or we were texting about it, but uh, I did not like Bethelian as my camera. I thought he, I don't know. To me, he read like he was on the verge of a nervous breakdown the entire he, time. He did. I think that was in- entertaining. I rather, I rather liked that. Um, <sighs> I mean, I didn't, like it was I a choice at least your... it wasn't boring i'll give you that but the i don't know it just didn't line up with the tone of everything else for me like that him the the plot and the conventions and the all those elements are feel pretty coherent from entry to entry right i mean different directors different actors are going to bring different spices to to this stew but the basic stew recipe from movie to movie feels pretty consistent and for me biff was just a a spice that did not mesh with this stew i'm gonna finish off Uh, this metaphor and we can move on but it yeah just his like weird nervous energy i just didn't buy him it made um it what it what it did, and I don't I don't mind this, but what I think it played into is that more so than the more so than the other films, there's there's some of this in Kiss Me Deadly, but more so than than any of the other Hammer films, there was some wild homosexual subtext in this in this movie. Yeah, this um, one felt much more of a piece it, with Chandler because I feel like Chandler frequently has characters that are coded as gay or are more explicitly gay in yes the novels and then well in the, in the movies well, they're always just like my roommate and you're like okay there, there's some of that in kiss me deadly too in, uh, but That's true. In, in this in this case uh it, elliot's performance only only feeds into that because he feels so awkward in mm. all of his scenes with with women he's literally the the one the scene where where he is is eating is eating a chicken wing uh or a chicken drumstick in in the middle of the oh, seduction. yeah like <laughs> that was weird yeah, there's so many strange choices that yeah. that he makes with the director however it all comes together uh but but it's it's fun <laughs> Um, I was amused watching it. I, I wouldn't say it was great, but uh, I was never bored. Uh, yeah, no, it just, it wasn't, but I can see that. I don't know. I, that is sort of an interesting read to me of the excesses of my camera's performative masculinity being, you know, repressed homosexuality. Sure. Interesting read. I don't feel compelled to go back and watch that movie again to, to watch it <laughs> through this lens. I'm sort of like, okay. But yeah, I, I like I, the spin. It's intriguing. Um, 
I don't know. Uh, I don't know how. I, it's hard to say how intentional some of these things are mm-hmm. as they're as they're coming together. I get the sense that this movie was shot rather quickly and yes. with um, and with three D. No um, exteriors, right? No, and there's the the um, like one alleyway the, scene or something. Even, it's almost all even interiors. more so. Even more so than Lady in the Lake, there's the really arbitrary Christmas setting. Yes, I was about to say um, it's continuing our Christmas, uh, which isn't even giving any kind of exterior. It's just giving a, a, a little what like a Christmas card or a journal yeah, or something. That's the thing is they do Christmas card introductions for each yeah. location because also this is so apparently my camera is a New York private eye, and this movie is set in New York and one of the other ones i think yes no i think the girl um, hunters it, not because uh, we did obviously girl hunters, but girl hunters is in girl new hunters, york as well girl right? hunters is is set in new york i think they filmed the exteriors in new york but then shot the rest in uh, right in so the so sort of an interesting dynamic there too you know some obviously the majority of the detective stories that we've the noir detective stories that we've watched i mean most of which have been phil marlowe for this have been la based and there is something and half the ones here are going to be la based and there is something about the la detective that like you said in the intro that sprawl just does something to the psyche that uh, i think we talked about last episode but again here it's just sort of that i think you you probably are running into um start starting around this era you're running into a case where where LA is is the setting by convenience for getting oh for sure too so well, again the so New York it, like it's set, you know it's set in New York but it's it's uh, I mean if they shot it in New York I don't know why they bothered because right it's all studio it's all you know sets all right so um, I mean let's like, talk about the actual movie <laughs> yeah um, we've got the supporting what, cast what here, we right? here? we've got we, we have a a uh, I guess the introduction of what what will be two running themes through through all of these movies of uh, of, of Pat Chambers our um, our mostly friend on the on the force um, and uh, and Hammer's loyal his girl Friday Velda um, and and yeah Velda's a consistent in general a welcome presence for me in these movies and there, there is sort of an accrued balance on these characters by the time you get to the fourth movie even though it's completely different actors and you know there's there's not even any kind of sense that like one movie is aware that the previous movie existed except in a very broad because they're adapting from the same books kind of way they're they're kind of a comforting presence especially in a in a series of stories that you're not really sure who's gonna backstab who to just have a couple characters that you're like all right these are these these and because they are, are, are such archetypical characters as well they're very ground like they you grab onto them very quickly and say okay i get it right i get who velda is because she's the girl who's in love with him but neither one is going to say anything about it but at the end of the day it's a hundred different stories that that we've seen before and after um so i and i think you know we'll get to the fourth one it kind of they do kind of leverage that pretty well if you've managed to watch the previous three adaptations that are un- otherwise unrelated. Very, um, very true. No, it remind me of um, Scream, where I'm watching the, all of the Scream movies with my wife, and we just watched the third one. And both of us only watched the first one previously. And by the time you get to the third one, you're 
pretty invested in these characters in a way that usually aren't in horror movies because they keep coming back, right? Instead of the series devolving to being about the killer, here it has devolved, and it hasn't devolved, but it has remained about the final girl and her supporting cast. So each time they reappear, just like with any long-running TV show, you're you know just sort of like, I know this person now, so I don't want something bad to happen to them. And, and same same here, I think. Yeah, that's it's very very true. Uh, even even with, and it works even with different actors mm-hmm. stepping into the role every single time. But we just watched a string of Marlowe's, and uh, and there was continuity in the sense that they adapted the same. We watched the same adaptation of, of a couple stories, but but there's not that same carryover in in cast to kind of draw them or uh, in character to draw them all together. And, well, I think it goes back to the pulp thing, right? I mean, I think Marlowe, Marlowe's books and Ch- Chandler's writing in those books is just a little bit more malleable and I think has different things that you can kind of take away from it and different added values that different, you know, for example, the fact that two different other detectives took a plot and read adapted for their own character and then did those books again, but with the Philip Marlowe, you know, I mean, like those demonstrate how though those mysteries are kind of resilient and kind of work on their own, right? They're not Agatha Christie mysteries, but they're also not this, where it is all, it is all about the tone and the flavor and the mystery itself kind of doesn't matter as, not that it matters that much in the Marlowe book, but even here, like, especially here with with these are all more violent and more lurid by, by a good measure than any of our, our Marlowe. Yeah. So if you're adapting these, like that's why you're adapting them. And so I think that that kind of, yeah, all those Marlowe adaptations, you know, feel very different and not just in terms of the supporting characters or a sense of continuity, but just the different actors and different directors and different contexts for each one wildly changes how they feel and land. Even the two best ones for us, the big sleep and murder my sweet feel like very different movies. And they're both pretty good Chandler Chandler adaptations, but they, they don't feel like they could be in the same. Whereas here, you know, I I'm like, yeah, these are all kind of the same. I, I might. I mean, maybe Kiss I'm, Me Deadly is. I would put in a slightly different field, but the other three. Well, and I think I think you do hit on something there that, um, and the reason that that um, Murder My Sweet and and Big Sleep um, are are both kind of landmarks, but but feel so distinctly different is is because there's a, a very very competent director behind them that's that's making more interesting choices. And and they're not just showing up to to turn out a, another um, just another picture. It's not sure, but even job. but even like setting those two aside, you know, if you look at like the Lloyd Nolan one and the the brother Brasher de Lou with George Montgomery, I mean, those are both like turn them out, but they still feel very different movies. Whereas, you know, I think if the same creative team that did My Gun Is Quick had just redone either jury it would have felt like a pretty similar movie you know what i mean again i think it's just because so much of why you're making this movie is a very specific kind of tone and this uh, this this pulp like again i I think uh, there's a reason that this is the name of the episode like that is why you do the mickey's blame books 
So I think that kind of boxes in and to, even with Kiss Me Deadly, where you do have like a director who knows what he's doing, you still wind up with a movie that is better than the other three, <laughs> but is still coherent. I mean, like, especially you, what we're really kind of melding all these, these different movies together. Uh, is there anything else that we want to talk about with either jury? Um, um, no, I think we, I think we've kind of, yeah, I mean, our, it's our way through here. It's interesting enough. I don't know. I would say like, you don't watch it, but I, I, I would go with lower, <laughs> lower expectations than, than Tristan would have you go in with. Um, I mean, I think, I think your expectations going in should be that this is, um, um, this is v- violent and, uh, and schlocky. And, you know, if that's going to scratch an itch for you, then, uh, you know, more power to you. You'll probably get some enjoyment out of it. Bring right. your 3D glasses if you have them. <laughs> uh, no, but so I think that's it. It's that like, like. If, that's what you look, if that's the itch you're looking to scratch, I would say you could watch any of these four movies and it'd be, it'd be scratched. Um, yeah. Are we doing I the put, pulp rating I, thing? I put in pulp rating just to see how, how, how pulpy, how we're on, on a scale of one, um, one to 10. How much does this satisfy um as as a piece of pulp filmmaking what do you think fred i'd put this at a six i think uh you know i feel like the clear limitations in terms of budget and time kind of hold it back from going all out in the way that some of these later movies do but it's still pretty pulpy i mean like you said it's it's even this as a baseline is pulpier than any of the Philip Marlowe's. That's that's true. Um, I'm going with eight because it, it's uh, it, it does, uh, that, which is not to to be misconstrued for a, a, a statement on quality, more on just where where those pulp thrills are coming from. Uh, eight out of ten punches to the face. Exactly. So let's move along to our next film, 1955's "Kiss Me Deadly." was out to get men who tortured women and killed with the ferocity of wild beasts. This was their jungle. Cut the knife! Kiss Me Deadly stars Ralph Meeker, winner of the New York Critics Award. Through his great talent, the vivid character of Mike Hammer comes to life as never before. Kiss Me Deadly arrives two years later in 1955. It stars Ralph Meeker as Mike Hammer with support from Albert Decker, Paul Stewart, Juan Hernandez, Wesley Addy, Maxine Copper, and a memorable early performance by Cloris Leachman. I mean, grabs you right from frame one. Under the direction of Robert Aldrich, this film leaves an impact from the panicked roadside opening to the explosive finale. You texted me uh, after you saw it. (laughs) What a movie. I think it's a hell of a movie. Uh, um, it really is. Um, it's it's certainly a noir. I would show to people who haven't seen many noir um, that I would I would fun. gladly recommend. It, it's it is really fun and it's pretty easy I mean, to to grasp. It's not it. Um, you you can just go along for the ride and there's multiple uh, entertaining sequences to it. 
Yes. Uh, yeah. It's it, it, right from the right from the beginning. Cloris Leachman running down a highway, just in a trench coat, <sighs> dark lighting. of night. I mean, just uh, if nothing else, that this really demonstrates how much a director can elevate uh, a script uh, movie. I mean, at, at its roots, all four of these movies, maybe not because we did leaks of the ending, but at, at the base level, all four of these movies are kind of the same movie, but Kiss Me Deadly has somebody who's got some thoughts on what he's doing, and it comes through, in, and he's making like as many interesting choices as he can and how he's telling the story, and it brings so much extra to the the. I mean, like I said, from the opening with her running, and then also all of the locked off car shots over the shoulder are so well lit and framed, even though they're they're moving around and driving through the the, the highway. I mean, it, just that the, opening the, sequence is the opening. Is... The opening credits where where her breath, she's just she's just catching her breath, and it's it's heavy and it's taking over your your senses while while the credits are are making their their first impact is yeah, like you said, really it is something. Or early, uh, truly memorable Cloris Leachman uh, appearance. So uh, let's just do the, the plot here. On this outing, Mike Hammer follows the breadcrumbs of a dead hitchhiker, a.k.a. Cloris Leachman, all the way to the pursuit of what Velda dubs the Great What's-It, a mysterious case holding an extraordinary power. As various players scramble for control, Lily, a woman claiming to be the hitchhiker's roommate, appeals to Hammer for protection. In the end, though, with the other players wiped off the board, she will shoot Hammer and open the box herself. It does not end well. What's in the box, you ask? And Brad Pitt, the power <laughs> of God. What's in the box? What's in the box? It's all. What's this is where what's in the box all comes back to. Um, that the the great what's it the 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 case filled with uh, what what. Um, is described. Um, have you ever heard of the Manhattan Project? Right. Um, I love they just rattles those off and just like, okay, great, I get it. Yeah, um, we, un- we understand. Also, you're like, all oh, these people are dead. You know, like that's the other thing. I'm like, okay, even this thing is like a lead box, which nobody actually says is a lead line box. They're all dead. That porter in the gentleman's club where the case is being kept in a locker. Anybody who like went it out of that locker to. I mean, if this thing is so radio- radioactive that it's giving off light <laughs> and is causing a tornado in a ri- living room, it is hot material, and they have all been exposed to serious radiation. Yes, absolutely. But also, uh, so it's so interesting because it is such a movie that's like, and presumably the source material in the book as well. That okay, the United States dropped these two atomic bombs that have completely changed the way we think about warfare and science and destructive power and as a broad concept we can invoke them and people know what they are and we can shorthand it and it's going to put the fear of god in them as an actual concrete thing nobody knows what this is except for those physicists who are working in the manhattan project and so we can tell them whatever we want and so it becomes you know like vaguely scientific but not really and it, it's just sort of the thing of like this is essentially science fiction in the context of 1955 and so they can do this so and just sort of be like just go along with the ride yeah um and and by by this point we've got the the cold war 
um, crystallizing. Um, the the bomb is on people's mind. It, sure. it is it is a very real thing. And and the reason that that this movie came onto my radar first is back in I, I'd taken many film courses back in college. Two of them were memorable than the others, and one of those was was on film noir, uh, where I watched many classics that we have and have covered and all and will cover in the future. But uh, the other the other most memorable film class I took was on atomic cinema and that mm. is where i actually watch kiss me deadly and clearly like this is this is coming at an earlier point we haven't gotten we haven't gotten to uh we haven't gotten to some of the the more explicit 60s meditations on uh, on on the bomb um whether they're dr strange love uh, or on the beach or something like that but they're they're this this is uh, really taking a concept that is terrifying and impossible for people to really wrap their heads around, and um, and and merging it with uh, the MacGuffin yeah. in a beautiful fashion. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it is that in general, right? That genre was is able to distance you from it enough to make it feel safe to engage with, right? So whether here or Gojira or any of the 50s atomic monsters in the sci-fi B-movies, you know, uh, all of those were providing, right, a a way to engage with it in a way that felt just a little bit more unreal and a little bit more fun. Whereas, like you said, by the time you get to the 60s, you can you can really start grappling directly you with could, it as a series. You could throw Ten Commandments in there too. You can oh, anything sure. dealing with the the power of God uh intervening there's um that it's it's and that's one of the reasons for um i i think you see such excesses in the the 50s um Mm. is is just kind of a reaction to that now there's there's also the it's the logical evolution of where where hollywood is going at this time you've got um it's not gonna it's not gonna stay in place but there's still restrictions by the production code in place so um so movies have to be um, movies have to build on what came before them and mm-hmm. uh, and and that's where we get 3d getting in- instituted uh, that's where we get uh, the tingler and mm. other crazy effects in movie theaters uh, but uh, thank goodness it gave us kiss me deadly <laughs> yes oh man what a movie I mean it just looks so good so much again so much credit to Robert Aldrich and his DP which I don't know who who shot this for him but just um, a... Aldrich would go on to um, to direct some some memorable movies. Whatever happened to Baby Jane? Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Uh, Dirty Dozen. Uh, there's certainly uh, uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane? Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Have some some real camp bona fides in there, and uh, and so you can kind of see how, even though they're very different in genre, uh, see how um how he's you know evolving his style moving into the 60s uh sure. but but this is my favorite film of his i've seen for sure oh so I'm, yeah uh, so it was shot by ernst laszlo uh who would also go on to do logan's run and it's a mad 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 world i think that's all of them. and inherit the wind he was the dp on that mm. i can't if there's more than one dp on that but he also did quite a few noirs that we will undoubtedly get to 
uh, DOA, uh, While the City Sleeps, The Big Knife. Uh, oh, we also did the uh, original Airport. Huh. Interesting career. Cool. Uh, but anyway, uh, here, just, I mean, the way, uh, I, can't, I can't imagine this movie being set in New York because so much of it is about the expansiveness of LA and it's shot so wide and it's so much about car culture too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Car, cars are, are, um, are so vital here. Um, we've got poor Vavavoom or Nick Vavavoom and who, who is uh, a marked man. From... Yeah. I was like, actually, I would have liked, love to see him come back. Uh, I mean, obviously, not going to happen but he would have been a fun character to have as a running and he does feel like a, again one of these classic i mean essentially his cue right like his his tech guy yeah exactly he, if he if he'd stuck around if he'd been in the mix i would have been thrilled um unfortunately yeah. no he was he's doomed to be crushed beneath a beneath a car and so that was also something that started to stick out with the first one and then really solidified for you here is that each of these movies is very interested in not being just about white people and like nick is greek and so at the time greeks would have been assimilating into like a cultural identity of whiteness but would have not been there yet i would say and many of the other movies have scenes or characters that are you know my camera is definitely a white guy going going around but he is going around and engaging in, in uh, talking to other cultures and making it feel more like an actual city that that is taking place in whereas all the philip marlowe movies are exclusively white people with the occasional you know hired help in a space you're, you're totally right well and then there's uh there's Maltese falcon where where the 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 villains are all coded as as uh, you've got Peter Laurie being European, being he's he's coded as other, um, right. but he's um, yeah, all, all of the all of the villains are made to be um, to be European, to be of a of a different stock, certainly. But it's not not quite the same as what we're starting to see here with um, with actually finally introducing. Um, Minorities, people of color, into the. To be clear, these are very minor characters. Yes, it's not like this is some revolutionary movie that's foregrounding the experience of people of color. It was just after watching the '40s movies, it was just sort of like, oh, okay, now these movies are acknowledging that people besides white people exist, and that's nice. It's a step. It's a it very is, small step. It but is it's a, a small step. step, but it's something, I guess. Um, yeah, I think that's a, a really it's a really good call out, um, and it's only going to be more more present as we as we move on to the other adaptations. I was I was really struck by how how much this movie places an emphasis on the strain upon the human body, um, and it's it's such a corporeal movie. Um, you've got it, it shows. Uh, we've got ballet dancing. We've got boxing. We've got an old man who's who's hauling a massive trunk around. Um, we we've got, of course, the the brawling and the the fist fights that that we've come to expect from Mike Hammer. And then uh, and then we've got uh, a like, face melting finale. This is all about constantly reminders of of the toll on human bodies. Yeah, that totally reached me. I hadn't, I hadn't picked up on it while watching, but that that rings true. Uh, for me, 
watching this, it felt like finally getting a key puzzle piece to the next 50 years of film history, especially as you get, you know, new Hollywood. And then after that, with the video store brats being to picking up the cameras, it, it feels like there are echoes of this movie. I mean, just watching it, what immediately, I mean, Spielberg must've loved this movie because I feel like it is a great example of using the camera in a wonder that's not ostentatious, but is pairing with the blocking in the scene to create a series of compositions without having to cut. Like it, it moves through space with the camera very well. Uh, there's Spiel, Spielberg and Tarantino, both very, oh, very Tarantino, directly for sure. quote, quote this movie uh, when in, in, but Raiders when, when Raiders face is melting at the hundred percent is is a callback to and just like the wind and him crawling, but also yeah. I thought the keys and ET is a callback to the shoes here. Oh, in the oh. same way of framing this character off largely off screen, but by one defining trait that that just keeps recurring. So I think yeah, this must have been a, a good call. Uh, big yes. movie for Spielberg. Spielberg, um, and then of course we've got the um, the the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, um, and uh, Ryan Johnson has said that the ending of Brothers Bloom, or like the first half of the ending of Brothers Bloom, which is set at a beachside house, is a direct reference to this as well. I had not put that together, but I can totally see that, and probably in the minority here, but. Brothers Bloom is my favorite Ryan Johnson movie. It's not my favorite, uh, but it's great. I, I mean, it, I love all those a, movies. It's such but... a well-plotted movie. I, I I love it to pieces. Think, and we'll probably do this at some point if we get to our heist conmen season. But um, uh, the Diamond Dog stuff, I don't know. I'd be curious to watch it again. It, uh, that was the one part that kind of like hung me up a little bit at the time, but I'd, I'd be really interested to watch it again. Yeah. Because um, I, I, I still I, love it and, you know. I, I, I think uh, uh, for a future for a future heist season, we'll, yes. we'll get in, uh, into it. We'll be going to dig in on. Uh, uh, so yeah, so no, just uh, the again, Aldrich and Liza, what they're doing together here is just so confident and ambitious. And he's, he's not afraid. Um, on that exact note, he's not afraid. He's not afraid to announce those ambitions mm-hmm. at the end when. Um, Lily or whatever her other name is, um, is, is, um, is being warned about not opening the box and he's describing it as, as Pandora's box and the head of the Medusa, like, like he's going straight up mythological, like not that, that, that those comparisons. Remind me of um, the lighthouse actually in the same way that uh, Ah, invokes the, you know, mythological light, uh, yeah. Firebringer, Prometheus, all that kind of stuff. From frame one of Leachman, like running at you, afraid for her life. You're like, oh, this movie's doing something. It's it's rare. Sometimes movies have great openings. Sometimes movies have great endings. It's it's pretty a pretty special ending. thing to get both of them in uh, in I mean, one just, package. I mean, the ending is to me is a horror movie. It is. It is absolutely a horror movie. Down to like uh, her bursting into flame uh the entire and, and there's no there's no quick button at the end no you know, they just you see stand they, there they're they're there the they're alive they're in the ocean horrified but, and that's it well 
while the world in front of them is burning to the ground. I mean, uh, it's it's the end of the world. Is is uh, I, I mean, it is a direct metaphor of the atomic bomb as Pandora's box, right? And like, there's no going back to the way things were. It is innocence lost. Yeah. Um, and Great movie. Uh, and it's, it. it's a hard it's Don't a hard like act to follow. Years. But if you uh, if you have not watched many noir and you were looking to get into it kiss me deadly is a great gateway drug um yes. it's so, again so fun i can't emphasize enough it is just a fun like the the core idea of what pulp should be which is yes lurid but also in service of just being a fun time yeah it doesn't lose sight of that not not for a moment um and with that out of the way, I suppose we should keep things moving. Well, we'll get um, oh, we have our pulp ratings. Oh, I'm I'm ten out of ten for for this. It's it it delivers everything. I couldn't ask for, for more. Eight and a half to me. A ten out of ten pulp is into camp, right? Like I think if you hit ten out of ten, you've lost control of the ship. <laughs> and so, eight and a half to me is like you watch it right up to the line but kept your hand on the wheel. And so we can just stay, stay, everybody stays inside the boat. I'm, I'm losing this metaphor, but you know, I, right. I, I gotcha. Uh, yeah. So I think it's eight and a half to me is like as pulpy as you can get and still be confident that somebody's telling a good well, story. Now I'll have to adjust my, my scale accordingly. So if I have that example, I'll have to go 11 out of 10. Or right. You'll have 11 where you're just like, Oh, this went off the charts. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> all right. Well, I don't even we'll know what that, that would, would, would be, it. but um, um, I'm sure we'll find it eventually. We, we most definitely will we'll find it along the way here. Um, so yes. that brings us to my gun is quick. <laughs> see every pulse-pounding thrill in the book as Mike Hammer, the most famous private eye in the business, battles the hoods and baits the blondes of two continents in Mickey Spillane's newest bombshell of brute force, bare flesh, and boiling terror. You'll meet the most beguiling collection of sultry sirens that ever lured a susceptible male into a trap of mayhem and murder. My Gun is Quick brings us up another two years, this time to 1957, stars Robert Bray as Mike Hammer with Whitney Blake, Donald Randolph, Pamela Duncan, and Booth Coleman. It is directed by Victor Seville, who had produced our um, our previous movies, uh, and George White. Uh, the, the plot here... Uh, my camera is uh, my, my camera buys some soup for a prostitute in a in a diner. <laughs> I mean, that is what happens. But it's it just is, so ridiculous when you say that out loud like that. It is um, where we start, and and she turns up dead, and he realizes that a noteworthy ring she was wearing has gone missing. Tracking down this uh, this piece places him smack in the middle of a hunt for missing jewels stolen by the Nazis, uh, which are also being pursued relentlessly by a colonel. Um, in a series of events that will surprise no one who has been watching any of these movies, it ends with the betrayal of a woman. Um, that that has by now become um, the the one reliable thing we know that Spillane will end every movie of his, every book of his on. Yes, well, that reminds me. So one thing we did talk about real fast with I, the Jury, that I thought was interesting was I, I, Peggy Castle to me was the best part of that movie. Um, and 
her Charlotte Manning uh, felt very connected to the psychotherapist from Nightmare Alley. Yeah, she did. Um, that it, uh, there's definitely, definitely strains of that carrying forward. Um, uh, and and I, uh, I, I would say more. I think more successful maybe even for me than in, than in the, the 1947 Nightmare Alley. I mean, it's more of a character. Uh, like you get to more, spend more, more time with her. And, but also she's a psychotherapist who only ever hangs out in sleepwear. So, you know. <laughs> um, anyway, that's a different movie. Um, so my gun is quick. Any, uh, I think we've all established by this point. Uh, we, we have no, no other uh, prior experience with, uh, with this movie. Uh, just what we've already seen from from my camera and I was a bit thrown off I thought honestly I actually thought we were in for one thing from the opening credits and then immediately realized we were not you know once we're we're, the the credits kind of ground us in a in an actual on location um, image and I'm and and, you know you're at first you're expecting that and then it becomes um, I think you've called this out it's just so it's such a confined movie it feels very stagey yes i mean it thankfully it opens up in act two once it gets to the uh femme fatale uh what's her name whitney blake once it gets again i think the the ladies in these movies are consistently very good yes um and so once it gets to whitney blake and her house by the water and like by necessity because they're shooting boat action it it has to like actually go do some interesting but uh yeah to start it just felt like a tv pilot i mean it, it felt uh, like there were a lot of compromises where they wanted they really did want the the exteriors to um to land also, but they they shot the there's there's just no there's no set decor there's nothing no. it, it's so but even the exteriors are sh- have the generic feel of a tv exterior like that th- that classic like three-quarter okay, it's this house in the suburbs or that government building in the city or whatever, where it's just like, we shoot it in the most nondescript ways to deliver the information and then we go inside. And that is how the, like from that opening shot, I was like, oh, this is, and I think it just is, it's a producer who decided to direct it. And I mean, the even just the way he shoots the sets, it's like he puts the camera square center of the set and lines the frame up with the edges of the set and so you're essentially just shooting proscenium. And yeah. then sometimes he kind of pushes in and moves with the character. But the camera is like proscenium for the first half of this movie. It is bonkers. I'm just like, and, what? and we've got a, we have a tough act to follow. Uh, I, that definitely um, didn't d- help. It's yeah. <laughs> disclosure. I did not watch these. Um, and I, I watched I the jury first, then I watched my gun is quick. And then because I'd already seen kiss me deadly, I went back and revisited. I had also told that. you that they were, um, not great. but I watched but, them in order. Same, same thing more or less applies because, because the, the there's verve to I the jury. Um, there's some panache uh, to it. I mean, there's I some. Think I, there's some. Uh, th- this does not, this does no, not have that. That's true. This is like, this is a zero. And then I, the jury is like a half measure. And then kiss me deadly is like 10. <laughs> it's a full yes. 10. Um, yeah, no, it is just. And, oh. and, uh, and, and so we've got, uh, 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 Robert Bray is my camera and he's fine. Um, very I think- solid. He he's he's much more tradition traditionally masculine. I feel like he's got 
I, he, he doesn't, he doesn't feel like a lug in no, quite the same way. He's that, more of like a standard, like he could be a Philip Marlowe. Like he wouldn't be like a great Philip Marlowe, but he'd be a perfectly fine Philip Marlowe. And he's a perfectly right. fine Mike Hammer, but he's not, he's not making interesting choices in the way that all three of our <laughs> other Mike Hammers are. No, um, he, he, all of the other Mike Hammers make, you're, you're, you're very right. They make choices. Whereas he is, he feels the most safe Yes. Um, and and therefore the most bland and generic from my from Which is my wild because this is a movie about essentially like Nazi gold. Yeah, um, this is uh, th- this is uh, I it's it's definitely got Maltese Falcon um, yes. vibes to your uh, what to what you wrote down. It's uh, it's it's a more uh, it's a more uninspired version of of that same kind of plot. <laughs> It's like pulp, but it's not the fun, exciting pulp of Kiss Me Deadly. It's just the much more sort of generic, off-brand pulp where you're just like, this is a pulp, this is what this is what pulp does. So we're just gonna do Maltese Falcon but with a little pulp in, in there. You're just like, all right, that's what you gave me. And there there isn't any real teeth to the the Nazi jewels element um no. to it to it where whereas as we'll as we'll get to real soon um they've got much more much more investment in uh in going after the the commies oh yeah i mean that reason like i'm not surprised blaine is, uh, <laughs> no you know. no surprise at all <laughs> well mccarthy uh supporter um yeah I don't know yeah i don't know the shoot at the end was kind of fun just because it went and I- did something it was the high point. There was a uh, that. I don't even know if it goes towards the takes high point. A, but... Takes a hook hand to take him out. Yeah, there's like a guy with a hook hand. I mean, again, it's like I, it's... I didn't even register the hook hand before, but all of a sudden there it was, and then he was he... he's swinging at him, and he's and my yeah. camera's jumping around on on boats, boats, and shooting people, and ah, man, yeah. Again, I, I, I again, I, I just want to plug uh, Winnie Blake. I think is really great in this. The Velda in this is probably of the three on-screen Veldas is maybe the least interesting, but I think also has the least to do. Although yeah, I think I, this I, is, um, you know, again, to the point of it, it sort of feels like pulp by numbers. It opens with Mike Hammer berating Velda over the phone and being like, woman, don't tell me what to do. He's like, okay, <laughs> we're going heavy on the misogyny part of pulp, I see. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, sure did that. And 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 overall, this was this was definitely the the weakest link for me uh, overall. But I I've got to lay a lot of that on. There's just on a on a performance level, on a directing level, there's just not not a whole lot to really grab onto. No, I did like um, the showgirl in this too. She's I, I she's like interesting. Too, yeah, but um, yeah, Whitney Blake definitely highlight and uh and yeah by this point i think we can call out that that trend um what is uh what is going on with spillane that literally every single story has to end with with a woman betraying mike hammer um and and then getting what's coming to her Uh, i mean i I don't know just yeah that's uh, as we'll see in the next movie like that's just how he reads on screen and i'm like that's a man who's got some problem with the women. And, you know, it's one of those things where 
uh, I feel like the the old uh, meet one asshole, they're an asshole. If everybody meets an asshole, then you're the asshole. But nobody told Mickey Spillane that, and he's just constantly going around like, "Man, everybody's a fucking asshole to me." Where where do we uh, where do we rank this on the pulp rating? So I'm gonna put this at a six. It again, it feels it's pulp, like it's above average pulp, but it is pulp by rote. Um, but I'm also as thinking about it some more. I think I'm gonna bump either jury up to a seven. I'd forgotten that also has like a great saxophone intro for for my camera, where you're just like, oh yes, just like oh this is. I, I mean, either jury to me feels very like core to the idea to the generic idea of the detective and the noir after the fact of like the the music. I mean, and, and there's nothing about it that is great. But no, it is, no, one, no one would mistake it for that. I don't. Right. I don't but think. it is representing but, sort but of it like is, the generic it, ideal of it. it. It is. It is very much in that pool. Um, I'm giving, I'm giving this one a five out of ten. Um, it's, uh, it, it's definitely the flattest for me. Um, it has some punches, but not enough. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. Too many I'm of the thrills are kind of. I'm gonna give. I'm gonna downgrade mine to a five point five. If if there's somebody else directing, I, if if this is more verve, like all the pieces are there. But it's just so like, all right, and now we're gonna do this. Yeah. Um, I was gonna kiss this lady, and now we're gonna tastefully cut away, and they probably had sex. Well, we arrive next and last in the 19th crowning achievements at the girl hunters. So let's uh play that trailer. <laughs> Four hundred million readers thrilled to the excitement of his stories. Now Mickey Spillane's hard-fighting, hard-loving private eye, Mike Hammer, comes to the screen. Rough, raw, and violent. But the girl hunters packs a startling Sunday punch. If I don't talk, will you belt me one? Hell, I never hit the dames. I always kick them. I'll talk. Do I get a reward if I do? Sure. I won't kick you. Mike Hammer played as only one man could play him. The man who created him. Mickey Spillane. The Girl Hunters take us to the end of our Spillane adaptations for this series, fittingly capping things off with Spillane himself taking the stage as Mike Hammer. He is supported by Golden Girl, Shirley Eaton, Scott Peters, and the stalwart noir player, Lloyd Nolan. I have to say, when I saw Lloyd Nolan's name, Lloyd Nolan's name pop up on the credits, it put a smile on my face. I, went, ah, I was an old friend. delighted. What a, what a what a fun presence. What a great guy. He's great. I, I feel he's like so he doesn't get talked about a lot, but he's like turns in really solid stuff every time and has good good stage screen presence and yeah. He um he he was certainly one of the the better parts of mess of Lady in the Lake and and here uh, yeah and and, and here and he, he's he's a, a high point for sure uh, right. what a guy all right so the plot the search for Hammer's old secretary in flame Velda pulls him back into the fold as a dying sailor seems eager to supply him and him alone with some information this sets off a trail for a mysterious figure called the Dragon and he finds an uneasy ally in Federal Agent Rickerby. A senator has been murdered, and Hammer finds himself circling the politician's widow. I mean, this just feels like Mad Libs. He will go on to track down the dragon, and once more, and no great surprise, the senator's widow will turn on him at the end. It's just I mean, what you expect. <laughs> I watched the movie, and I'm still like, how does this all 
fit together. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I'm, I'm still not totally clear on, on why, except well, that. So, we, we... I mean, like, uh, so a big plot point of this movie hinges on the fact, and this is why they had, I'm, I'm sure why they were like decided to do it in New York. A big plot point hinges on the fact that in New York, you can only get a detective's license, which Velda, the secretary had, if you have some kind of on the job experience, which as it turns out, she got by working for the OSS and was a spy abroad during World War II, which Spillane never knew, or that uh, Hammer never knew. And so then, like, that's her, that's what gets him fully into James Bond mode here, right? Of, like, there's an assassin going around, killing off people related to this international conspiracy. Like, it is fully past the point of anything to do with a private detective what's uh what's the the year is this is 1963 63. also the the year of dr no um i think it's like right around that. the same time i mean definitely the books uh, had, had come out by then but the so. books are already out so so certainly the uh the, the spy oh totally uh, dr. Dr. Two like... was 1962 so even more even more so 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 dr two is fresh on audiences minds Right. And, um, and I'm sure the source material book was in response to the Ian Fleming books. So I, I 100% that this is him reacting to the trends and also him being like those fucking commies. And uh, and they get to in turn inform um, inform Bond because uh, because Shirley Eaton is known um, very iconically to to whether you know her name or not to movie watchers as the girl that is painted gold mm-hmm. lying on. James Bond's bed, uh, but but uh, but this um, this comes first. So uh, so gold. Yeah, gold. I mean, I can see why. Although it's also one of those things from like year. nobody ever talks about the fact that this twenty-two-year-old model is married to a senator who died like five years ago. Oh yeah, yeah. What is just, what is that? What is that? Um, I mean, she's, she's supposed to be like thirty-five or something, but they just were like, "This is a very attractive young lady. Let's put her in the movie." <laughs> Uh, and then have and her make she... out with <laughs> Rick Wall, oh, no. Mickey Spillane. Mickey Spillane. Oh, uh, um, this Acting is Acting a... is a talent, and something that you have to work at is the lesson from this movie. What, what would this be like? Would this be like Neil Gaiman deciding to play Dream? What is, what is, yeah, what great, in the world yeah. is, is, is this? No, that, um, because it's, it's like not only is he playing his most iconic creation, but he's also playing him at the age of like 50, <laughs> 60 or something. You're just like, my God, what's going on? I mean, I, we've been rewatching 30 Rock and there's a few moments where it reminded me of Alec Baldwin's Jack Donaghy character being on camera and being like, I don't remember how to walk. Do my hands move <laughs> like this or do they move like this? Um. And there's shots of, Spillane like walking down the street with his hand in his pocket and you're just like that's not a human being that's a robot he doesn't he doesn't understand he doesn't understand acting but I'm not oh, sure he man. understands basic human uh, interaction either uh, it's it's a very strange performance but it makes it it is a strange performance that somehow does make sense when you consider that this is an author who decided to play his own creation right and I mean I'm very curious how could that end the, well like it must have been the books must have still been popular to some degree. And so there must have just been, Miss Me feels like a, a, a castle-esque uh, bit of PR where they're just like, it's not going to be good, 
but Spillane is playing his character and people are going to be curious enough to go see it and buy tickets. And that's all that matters. Like yeah. that to me is what and that he, decision is. He clearly was, like. uh, was, was quite celebrated in, in, in the time because the, enough that they were hinging the appeal of this movie on, on him and on, on Mickey Spillane is Mike Hammer right up. Right the up wild the thing is that like, it's a well-made movie around yeah. that. The, the score is great. The score is um, great. It's uh, shot it's really well. well. Uh, it's they put some um, money and, into it, like, and then at the center of it is this, this black hole. Yeah, uh, it it doesn't it make it makes a certain amount of sense, and still and it still doesn't when you watch it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, it just it is like if if they put an actual actor and, in there, this would be a pretty good movie. Yeah, um, and and sh- surely they could have found they could have found someone, oh, but inst- yeah. instead, uh, you've got I mean, you know, every every scene where he's he's acting across Lloyd Nolan, you just wish you could hop over and join him in a different movie, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, the spy movie that that Lloyd Nolan's in. Uh, it's also such a weird like it kind of reminds me of uh, Fast and the Furious, where you know you start off with these street racers who are also doing penny anti heists. And by movie nine, they are secret agents that are working with Mr. Nobody to foil space missions or whatever. You know, it's just like the the sprawl and power creep of those movies to me feels very of a piece with what's happening here where you're just like, I don't buy, like even the setting aside the spleen of it all, I just don't buy the like my camera in a James Bond story. Like that's no. just part of it. Just like, what is going on? And um, and and Spillane uh, makes instead of Mike Hammer feeling feeling either masculine or suave or whatever whatever they're hoping he comes across as, just because of the age, just because of his inability to act, he just kind of feels predatory. Like of charisma uh, or like chemistry with any character actor, other actor he's on screen with. I mean, just from the opening when he's in the hospital. And he just starts grabbing that nurse and making out with yeah, her. Yeah, like, oh, the nurse no. grabbing the nurse like that is real icky. It's uh, it doesn't work. And, and again, like all these movies are Spillane are based on Spillane's writing, and there's definitely that through line. But at least in the other situations, there's an actor with charisma who can kind of sell like, and like the other actress has something to play off of. So you'd be like, all right, this isn't exactly enthusiastic consent, but I can understand. I can at least be sold somewhat on the idea that like this lady wants to kiss this this handsome guy. And here I'm just like, oh boy, run yeah. away, run away. Um, is this uh is this our first in a different different train? Uh, our first noir where we've ditched the glasses of whiskey and we have grabbed PBRs. Uh, we, oh, yeah. we are we're, they're drinking beer. They're we're we're in the '60s, different different time. Yeah, uh, it it feels weird seeing them hold hold cans as they're as they're toasting in the office like this is most critics put the end of noir in like the late 50s and we're just so clearly past that i mean like the fact that the senator's wife is constantly walking around in a bikini you're like okay so are we doing like teen beach craze movie are we doing james bond like what are what are it just feels every direction it's like again like on a technical level this is a very well-made movie but on a production, like producer level, you're like, oh, they just wanted to make money. And movies are a business. I get it. That's, that's what motivates it. But it is a very crass, like, 
We're yeah. just trying to make some well, money here, people. Also, Hollywood in the '60s is a weird time. It True. is be- before we before the production crisis, code gets dismantled. You've got for- foreign cinema is like turning out hits, box office hits, and and is able to do things that Hollywood can't. Yeah. And and you've got some things like the Sound of Music's and the Doctor Zhivago's that kind of push mm. things push things big and bold and have tons of Hollywood money behind it. But, but for the most part, you've got um, you've got pictures that don't know what they can be or what they're going to be. And, uh, and this is, they're caught between genres, between movements. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, the French new wave and, and elsewhere are just breaking all of the rules and, and relearning what a movie can be. As we'll get into in our next episode. Indeed. Hint, hint. So, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, sixties uh, are. If it's not clear, noir noir is dead now. Um, it is. It yeah, will rise again be, as something else. There's there are definitely some movies that that continue to come out, but I think this as good as good as any. It's sort of encapsulating like this was an archetype and a, and a genre that were, that were kind of at sea in this moment and weren't sure what they're supposed to be or who they were for or how they're supposed to make money. So what's pulp, your uh, your pulp pulp rating rating for the girl hunters? uh seven and a half i think i'll go with a seven for this one seven myself. yeah like if no yeah it's seven if if kiss me deadly is an eight and a half this is a seven uh it's pulpy it's got, it's, it's got the it's got the pulp elements for sure i mean right but it's such a, it's also like a different brand of pulp right like we're uh, it's interesting because there's like there's that overlap of like casual misogyny towards women and violence and but then there's also like bring in the like there's an assassin named the dragon going around killing people and you're like okay so now, now this is like the new breed of spy novel pulp rather than the the detect hard-boiled detective pulp um so it is it is very pulpy it's just pulpy in a very different way which is interesting also i just wanted to note that uh the entire time that mike hammer is going back and forth with her with the wood senator's widow about uh gun safety they both keep pointing the gun at her face He's like, you got to yes. handle a gun well. And he's just like shoving it in her face. And then he hands it to her. And she's like practically looking down the barrel being like, oh, I'll take better care of this going forward. <laughs> I mean, it, A, it's a ham-fisted setup for the finale. And like the payoff, you're just like, this is not a justified scene, except for the fact that that's how they're going to offer because he like yep. sticks oh, it in boy. the thing and stuffs the barrel so that it blows up in her, in her, in her hands and kills her. But just like, whew, I was just like, don't point the gun in each other's faces. Don't do it. Even if it's a fake gun on a set, don't do it. Oh yeah. Oh, that was that was just cringeworthy. Oh man. Oh, all right. So I just had to get that. So off. any Jeez. other other takeaways that that as we kind of wrap all of this up? Uh, you know, something else that I noticed watching these is that uh, Mike Hammer. It's always personal. Every single one of these movies, he is brought into the case because there's somebody that he cares about. And he's like, I'm going to avenge it. It's a little bit more of a stretch with My Gun is Quick, where it's the um, the sex worker that he meets and then she gets killed. But there's still like a personal connection where he's like, I'm just going to yeah. do it to get vengeance. And it's such a break from the spades and the, the, and the, the Marlowe's especially, where it is like the, uh, the blue collar. The, I get hired um, to do a job. And that's what brings me in here. Yeah. Every single one of these, he's like, I met somebody and or this is somebody I know and something bad happened to them and I'm going to write wrongs. And, um, and it feels very much 
disconnected from his actual like business. Um, yeah, I think that's a, I think it's a real smart call. Another thing that jumped out to me, that I didn't put on here, Mickey Spillane and Mike Hammer have clearly had, clearly had a huge impact on this time, but they really haven't, that's not transcended to, to modern, to like, you know, our lifetimes really um, ad- adaptations of this. You don't see Mike Hammer getting revisited much in recent decades. Um, and he does feel very much like a product of his times, but um, Spillane's uh, the, the, the other, the other, hard-boiled um the other hard-boiled author of the 50s who keeps um who keeps getting uh who people keep coming back to over and over and i think there's another adaptation about to land is uh, is patricia highsmith um who's had sure. um, much more what much about, more modern uh, resonance i mean definitely patricia highsmith uh, the adaptation just came out deep water is a highsmith novel Oh, is that, uh, I, I, yeah. What are you thinking of? Oh, no, I think there's another Ripley on the way. Oh, you're right. There is, yes. That's that's um, what I was thinking of. But yeah, Deep Water is another yeah. Highsmith novel that just, uh, adaptation that just came out. Um, uh, what about, uh, what's his name? He did the, the Parker books. Or was it the 60s? That was, he was in the 60s. Um, that's another one that like, I feel like it's a defining one, but he's, defining it in, in a true anti-hero kind of way as opposed to uh this sort of transitional phase yeah i mean i think i agree like part of this just the like of the times of it all where you're just like i don't know how you i mean yeah if if this had ma- maintained as a franchise in the way that james bond is has then it would be in wrestling with the same thing that james bond is where they're like it's time for like a person of color or a lady to be in it. Also, like, what's the deal with him sleep with all these ladies and then killing them? You know, like that. It'd be the exact same conversation that that would be happening with my camera adaptations. Yeah, they're very, very true. So, um, I just want to also flag that, uh, and this is really true. The two movies set in LA, but uh, for something that my cut is quick and kiss me deadly made clear to me is that I will never get sick of watching cars actually drive around 1940s and 1950s LA in black and white. Like if, if you shoot that on location and we're like actually moving around with them, well, I'm just like, I could watch this a, for an hour with some interesting music. We got it. a four minute drive and my gut is quick. We did indeed. I, I, I started clocking it because I was wondering when it was going to end, but I mean, uh, <laughs> it tickled my fancy just because i was like this is this is like asmr to me and i'm just like this is sensory this is my full sensory experience and i'm really enjoying it but i can totally see being like why are we still watching this guy drive down a highway uh uh no there's a certain there's a certain calming element to it i I, even even if uh, yeah i don't know it does it for me too and so if it does it for you too those two movies are great examples of la car culture in the 50s um all right we've talked yeah. about my camera enough let's um, uh um as, as we're wrapping up if any if if we're wondering where noir goes from here um it's it's in disarray but i i, I want to throw out a recommendation for uh for sam fuller's the naked kiss which is from i think 64 and it's it's about as, as pure pulpy brilliance as as you're gonna get and it's a it's a good example of the noir legacy being carried on in a fashion in the 60s so if 
if the pulp element does something for you, Fuller in general is your man, but mm-hmm. the Naked Kiss is my favorite of of his, and and yeah. that's uh, definitely a little little past the noir era. Not to drag this episode on even longer, but from the opening keynote, your your question about you know why is this did it have to go this way, right? And I think it kind of did. I think if you think about any genre subgenre you know there's an initial 10 years or so where it's really fresh and then by the end of that cycle it starts to cannibalize itself and it becomes defined by the tropes and those tropes become more exaggerated in part because of like the business side of things being like, this is what people want. So let's give them more of it. And then also just because like, well, it's been done before. So we've got to find a new way to do it. And the best way to do it in a new way is to like build on it. So, you know, I think if you think about, I don't know, I know I was talking about Scream earlier. So if you think about like the slashers, you know, you look at Halloween and you look at um, Black Christmas, for example, you know, those feel like they're trying to be Hitchcock movies. I mean, like Carpenter has explicitly said, like Halloween was meant to be a Hitchcock movie just made for $300,000. And then within, I mean, that's a really short turnaround because it was so much about the the cheap money, but I don't know, within like eight years, you're talking about Jason 15 and Nightmare on Elm Street. At, and it's just first, like- At first know, I was going to say- um, uh, is it is, is kiss me deadly the scream but no kiss me deadly is evil dead too <laughs> um it's mm, I, I mean if you're talking about like slasher specifically i would say kiss me deadly is like jason five or jason six where it's like fully leaning into the insanity of i mean especially like friday the 13th i'm sorry not jason friday the 13th right i think it's like friday the 13th six where it's like I'll okay. admit to we not being up on my my multiples of uh, Friday. I mean, they all blend together, but you know, it's like <laughs> that's the one where you like Jason becomes the Jason we know now with the mask and the machete. Like all the parts are that he's an imposing figure. You know, <clears throat> we've gone from, and these are going to be spoilers, I guess, for a movie that is forty years old. But uh, we go from Mrs. Voorhees being the killer, an old lady being the killer in the first one, in a Bay of Blood esque giallo riff to we're rooting for the killer and he is an unstoppable force that has been brought back from the dead multiple times and is identified by key signifiers. And he's just going around and start killing people. And it's like, it hits that perfect balance of ridiculousness, but also being fun and sort of delivering the exact thing you want. And then after that, it all slides in the other direction. It just becomes ridiculous. So that's my argument for right. Kiss Me Deadly being the Friday the 13th part six. I won't fight you on it. <laughs> genre. Glad we got there. This is what people come to this podcast for. I'm assuming they're coming to this podcast, but if they are, it's for hot takes like this. <laughs> so uh, bringing it home with Kiss Me Deadly again in honor uh, uh, of our our glowing briefcase. What's What movie is so good it deserves... It deserves to be in the box. Uh, for me, it is Turning Red. We watched it 
this past week. I haven't seen it yet, but I want to. It is great. It is fun and funny and moving and all those things you want a Pixar movie to be. The cultural war brouhaha over the five lines of dialogue that briefly mention the fact that women have periods is bonkers and just a sign of the stupidity of the times. But uh, watch this movie. It's great. I, I, I have it's, been it's um, I've been very put out by anyone who has complained that that this is set in like Toronto in 2002 or whatever. Oh, it's such which dumb, it, it, whatever. It, I mean, it's 20 it, years it, ago. It like, makes me upset that someone. If George care. Lucas could make uh, American <laughs> Graffiti, then uh, yeah. I can't think of her name, but the writer director of Turning Red can can do this. Uh, I I can't can't wait to watch it. Uh, and and my my choice is also a recent a recent release that uh, last week I was uh, well be some weeks ago when this airs, but I was road tripping around Texas. And I uh, decided to have my first, and I was in Austin, decided my first uh, Alamo Draft House experience would be going to watch X, which um, I'm excited it, to watch this. Which was fitting. They played trailers for Texas Chainsaw Massacre and porn before the movie. Um, <laughs> I mean, and, sure. uh, and, and it's quite good. It's, it's, it's much better than any other riff on, on Texas Chainsaw Massacre that I've seen uh, with, with a, a crew going to shoot a porn movie in a rural Texas farmhouse, uh, which goes about as, as well as you would expect. It's set in the late seventies. Um, Utah West fan. Um, I am, I am actually very unfamiliar with the broader oh, works of Ty West. So, you'll really enjoy. Um, I clearly need to fix that because I, this was, it was very well put together. It gave you what you wanted, but not always in the way you wanted it. And as far as much as a movie about a, a making a porn in a in, in a uh, scary Texas backwater town uh, could possibly be, it's it's rather sex positive. So wonderful! No, I'm, I'm very excited. To, I, to I liked it quite a bit. Uh, delivered everything I wanted to the memorable scares. Uh, highly recommend. Fantastic! I can't can't wait to hopefully put it on one of my segments in the future. Excellent. Well, that brings us to the end. Uh, thanks, as always, for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of and genres. Pulpiest. And pulpiest. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. We will see you next time when we leave behind American soil for detours to France and Japan amidst the swinging 60s. There we'll be seeing what kind of disruptions Jean-Luc Godard and Seijun Suzuki have been plotting for the detective genre. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend.